Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, Lord, I need your help. I don't know the people in this room. I don't know anything about the people in this room, but you know everyone in this room. You know the things that they hope and you know the things they fear. You know the things they dream and you know the things they dread. You know the things, Lord, that they tell everyone, but Lord, you also know the things they've never whispered to anyone. And because of that, you're the one who can minister. I pray, Father, that through the word of God you would speak, through the spirit of God you would minister, and the outcome would be this. When it's all said and done, you would help us to be more like Jesus than ever before. That is our passionate prayer in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. And we all agree together saying, in Acts chapter 27 and verse 20, these words come from the mouth of Paul. He said, the terrible storm raged for many days. It blotted out the sun and the stars till all hope was gone. It's that last phrase I want your mind to sort of capture. Till all hope was gone. See, if I were to walk into a church like this and I were to ask this question, how many of you believe that Jesus is a healer? People would raise their hand. If I were to ask the question, how many of you believe that Jesus is a provider? People would raise their hand. If I were to ask how many of you believe that Jesus is able to deliver? People would raise their hand. So all of those would be acknowledgments of faith. But if I mingled with people out in the foyer after the service, I might hear conversations like this. You know, I've just felt this way for so long. I don't know if there's ever going to be a day that I'm going to really feel healthy. Or to be like this. We struggled with debt our whole marriage. It's caused so many fights and frustration. I'm just not sure we're ever gonna dig ourselves out of this economic hole. On one hand, you raise and say Jesus is the healer, but in private conversations, you talk about how badly you feel. On one hand, you say that Jesus is the provider, but then you talk about the struggle of the economy of your life. Why is that? How is it? It's simply this, that many times we can have great faith in God, but we have no hope in God our personal life. And it's not as though we don't believe in him above. It's just we've lost hope that things will happen in our life. So today, I want to talk to you about hope and what it does for you. I want to talk, talk about why it's significant for you. And I want to give you four principles. And the first one is this. You were created to be a person of hope. When God designed you, he designed you to be an individual that is filled with hope. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12 puts it this way. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What that basically says is that when someone lives without hope, their heart doesn't work. Their life doesn't function. They don't live the way God intended them to live. In the way that an engine might need fuel of gas or diesel, you need hope. And when there is no hope in you, your life just doesn't work. Let me build a bridge. Um, 
If you came to our church, we do multiple services on the weekend, and we go through one after another, and I'm like every other pastor at the end of the day. Uh, when I finish my services, I have a very simple goal. I want to go home and take a nap. That is the goal on Sunday afternoon. So uh, many years ago, I had gone home. I had taken a nap. I woke up. You know, I'm still a little bit weary from the services, but I just wanted to relax. Well, one of the things I do to relax is I read. Well, I was looking for something to read. I looked around, and we had been mailed a magazine. This magazine was one of those that they were hoping that we would subscribe to. Uh, weren't planning on doing that. I just picked it up because it had readable material in it. I was thumbing through it, and I came across an article that was entitled like this. I wished I could prescribe hope. Now, honestly, when I came across that article, here's what I thought, that some pastor had written an article about hope. It had been picked up on a national level and had been put into this national magazine. And that's what I'm thinking. But then I began to read this article and I'm sort of astounded. Uh, every indication is that the person who was writing this was not a person of faith. They were not an individual who was talking about believing in God. They had just learned something. The article was written by a uh, surgeon who did very specialized surgeries. And these surgeries came with a certain risk. And they were usually the kinds of surgery that required levels of recovery that were pretty intensive. But in the article, he just wrote this. He says, my years of experience as a surgeon has shown me that if there's one thing I wished I could prescribe, I wished I could prescribe hope. He then went on and he said, as a surgeon on any given day, what happens is I'll have someone come in. They have a certain ailment. I'm gonna do the sur surgery. I know exactly what is gonna go on. And I know that they present this way. I know that they experience this. And I know what the outcome would be. He said, on a day, I might do two of those surgeries. And he said, I've always wondered, why is it that one of the surgeries goes well and one of them goes bad? Why is it that one person recovers quickly, the other one struggles to recover? Why is it that one goes on to live and one goes on to die? He said, there was nothing medically different between these people. And he says, as I thought back over the years, it hit me. Before we ever do surgery, we have the pre-consult. Any of you that have had surgery, before they take you back, the doctor walks in one last time. And there he says, the surgery. He says, we're doing this surgery, do you understand? This surgery is going to involve this, do you acknowledge that? All of those things are given for legal purposes. But he said, I've noticed something. He said, sometimes I will walk in and I will tell someone, well, we're having this surgery, but when we're having this surgery, there's some risk to it. And they'll stop me and they'll say this. You know what? I know this is a hard surgery. I know this is a difficult surgery. I know there's challenges to this surgery, but I have some things I need to do. I'm planning on doing those. I know this will be difficult, but doctor, I'm getting through this. And he said, I'd hear that. And then I'd do the exact same surgery with someone else. And before the surgery, they would say this, you know what, I'm not sure about this surgery. I'm not sure I'll make it through this surgery. I'm not sure that I'm gonna be able to get through this. 
And he said, without fail, over the years, I've learned that the people who go into surgery saying that they're going to do well do better than the people who go into surgery saying that they are going to struggle. I read that article and I just put it down. I turned to my wife, Jenny. I said, he got it. He understood it. See, he recognized something. People are created for hope. People are created to believe that tomorrow's going to be better than today. People are created to understand that no matter how difficult things are right now, that there is a tomorrow. People are created. And whenever you lose that hope, you cease to experience a part of what God has for you. So number one, you may be here, you may be from a thousand different backgrounds, but one thing we all have in common, you were created to be a person of hope. Number two is this, hope does for your soul what faith does for your body or your spirit. Hope does for your soul what faith does for your spirit. Now, your pastor has taught you well and has taught you that you're the unique part of creation. And being a unique part of creation, you are uh, an individual that has three dimensions to you. There is the spirit part of you that was made in the image of God. There is the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. There is the physical body. Each one of them require food. Your heart feeds on faith. It wants to believe. Your soul feeds on hope, it wants to think positive, and your body feeds on food, which as we know, your pastor is really, really into. And so, as a result of that, we've seen through the years that, that people feed themselves. Well, some of you are very, very good at feeding your body, I email. And some of you are very, very good at feeding your spirit. You get into the word of God and you get the faith of God. But what the Bible says is, is that hope feeds your soul the way faith feeds your heart. In fact, David talked about this in Psalm 42 and verse 11. He says, why are thou cast down, O my soul? He says, why are you always negative? Why do you always go dark? Why are you just consumed with the critical? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Why is it that whatever happens, there's just this constant churn, and it's never enough? He says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? He's talking to himself. He's saying, I wake up and I'm negative. I wake up and I'm already critical. I wake up and everything's wrong. No matter how right something is, I see it as wrong. And then he says, but hope thou in God. See, what David was doing was he was identifying his need. He says, I'm always gonna remain dark if I don't have hope. I'm always gonna remain critical if I don't have hope. I'm always gonna be negative if I don't have hope. I'm always gonna be consumed with darkness if I don't have hope. He says, I need hope to feed my soul. And everyone in here does. And if you don't have hope, you become the most negative, critical, and at times bitter soul that you can be.
You always see the dark. You always see what should be. You'll pick everything apart unless hope's in there. And for some of you, you know what David's saying. I wake up, I get out of bed, and I'm already there, filled with darkness, filled with negativity. He says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. Let me build a bridge. If you went to the Library of Congress, they have a ticking list that they run all through the year. And it's on the top books that are being read in the United States. So every year they have this counter that basically counts what books and how often they're read and how often they're checked out. And it just gives you the top books. Now, they'll openly say that the number one book that is read is the book, the Bible. And they don't even list it. They say the Bible every year in this country will be the most read book. But they have these other books up there that are out there and they just sort of track them to give people an idea of what's being read. Well, throughout the years and decades, frequently there's a book that makes that top 10 list. It's a book written by a man named Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. If you haven't read the book, it's a fascinating book. But in Man's Search for Meaning, it's a unique book because it's a book Victor wrote after having survived the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. And he talks about his experience being in one of the death camps. So in the book, he talks about how that he knew he was soon gonna be captured. But in his life, there was something that was very valuable to him. As a practicing psychologist, he had written a manuscript on, on, on people behavior. And he wanted to publish it. He had spent every minute of his time and he had gone in and he had worked on this. So when he thought he was gonna be captured, he came up with a plan. And the plan was to take that particular manuscript and to sew it into one of his garments. So he would be able to sneak it in one of the camps, hoping to get it out, to get it published one day. Well, he ended up being captured, and he talks about being put on the train. He said the train was horrific. They put so many of us in there, you couldn't stand, you couldn't move, it was hard to breathe. He said literally there were people who died on the train just getting to the camps. He said, when you reach the camp, they open the door and immediately guards are forcing you out of the uh, train. And he said, they either sent you to the left line or they sent you to the right line. If you went to the left line, that was your last day on earth. You were going straight to the gas chamber. You were not gonna be seen again. That was it. He said he had family, he had friends that went to the left. But somehow the guards looked at him and put him in the right lane. Usually that meant that they felt like you had physical strength to work in the factories. He says, as I was in the right lane, I'm looking over knowing that people in that left lane, I'm never going to see them again. This will be their last day. But as he begins to head down that right lane, they eventually lead him into this giant warehouse room. He said, it's sterile, it's stuffy, it smells, it stinks, the odors are horrible. But there's guards all along the wall. And the guards all along the wall look at them and they begin to command them to strip down, to take off all their clothes. 
this is going to reveal his plan of hiding the manuscript because it's hidden in his clothes. And so a guard comes up and makes him strip. His manuscript falls out. The guard literally goes over there, picks up the manuscript and throws it. To the guard, it was just a manuscript. But to him, it was his life. It's what he had poured his time, his effort, his energy to. He said when he literally watched that, he said, I didn't want to live anymore. He said, literally, I wished I was in the left lane. I wished that this was my last day. He says, there I'm looking at all my hard work laying across there. I'm standing there naked in this room. And the guards come up and they force us into this corner. In this corner is a pile of garments. The pile of garments are just garments that have been used by other people in the camp right up until the day they died. So they're not pristine. They smell. They have every kind of stain on them. But we're commanded to go over and pick up one. He says, I grab one and I pick them up. And he said, they don't fit. They're too large. They're too short. They're too this. But they're all alike. It's just like this giant garment. And all of them are made where there's a pocket right up front. He says at that point, he says he's standing there. And for whatever reason, his instinct was to put his hand in that pocket. As he put his hand in the pocket, he felt something. He felt in one corner there was something that was little, but it was all crumbled up. And his mind thought, what in the world is this? And he pulled it out, and it was a little bitty piece of paper that was wadded together. He unwadded it, and it was a piece of paper that just had two words on it. But see, he recognized the two words because he's a Jewish man. And he recognized that the two words were from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. A part of what is called the Shema. And every Jewish boy from the age of 5 is taught to read it morning and night. It's a composite of three verses in the Old Testament. And it starts like this. Hear, O Israel. But those words weren't there. The only two words were the next two words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. Those were the only two words. He's literally standing there, having no desire to live, and he looks down and he reads these words, the Lord. And he starts thinking to himself, you know what, it seems like there's no way I'm gonna make it through this. But then he read the words, but the Lord. Seems like there is no way that there will be a tomorrow. But he read the words, the Lord. It seems like there is no way anyone will come out of this alive. And he read the words, the Lord. It seems like my manuscript and everything I had dreamed for is, but then it said, the Lord. And he kept going through all these scenarios, all these circumstances, and he kept reading over and over, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I'm in a concentration camp, the Lord. I'm here, the Lord, the Lord. And he said, in the midst of anything, he said, all of a sudden those words started affecting him. And he said, I'm gonna get out of here because he's the Lord. I'm gonna survive this because he's the Lord. I'm gonna be able to work through this because he's the Lord. I'm gonna be able to do what I need to do because he's the Lord. And in the midst of everything, he read that repeatedly and he said, it changed. And see, in his book, he says this. Two words got him out 
of that concentration camp? The Lord. Here's the question I have for you. If two words could get that man out of the concentration camp, and could be the basis of him surviving that hellish condition, and you have available to you 66 books of the Bible, isn't there enough in there that can get you through whatever you're dealing with? Isn't there enough there that can get you through and get you beyond? You know, the saddest thing to me, having pastored during this COVID, has not been the the fact that we've gone through uh, sickness and disease, but how many Christians have just lost hope? How many Christians, the the newscast has squeezed every bit of hope out of them. And we're sitting there and there's people out here that don't know Christ, that don't know anything about Christ. And they're looking to us and we act as hopeless as them. And God's saying, but you've got the Lord. You've got the Lord. See, here's the thing. You were created to be a person of hope. And hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. Number three, when you have hope, it changes everything. When you have hope, it changes everything. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 says this, the thoughts that I have for you are for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I've had people walk up to me in my church and, and they, they say, well, God doesn't care about me. He doesn't think about me. And I said, he is. He said he does. Well, if God thinks anything about me, he just thinks bad things. I said, he thinks good things about you. See, when God thinks about you, he's not thinking, oh, there's the worst person who's ever lived on this planet. They're not thinking, hey, here's the person who's made the most mistakes. I look at this person, I can't believe I created him. God says, when I think about you, my thoughts are good and not for evil. See, when God thinks about you, he's glad that he created you. When God thinks about you, he's excited about your destiny. When God thinks about you, he's thinking, oh my goodness, I am thrilled to see them today. And then he goes on and he says, the thoughts that I have for you are for good and not for evil, to give you a future. To give you a future. But how does he give us a future? To give you a future and a hope. See, whenever you have hope, you have a future. Whenever you have hope, you have a tomorrow. Whenever you have hope, you have an expectation that God's going to be there, that God's doing something good, that the marriage will get better, that the health will get better, that the job will get better, that life will get better. You're living with the hope of God. Because in Romans chapter 15, it says, may the God of all hope fill you. Some of you, you've had every ounce of hope squeezed out of you. And the God of hope is saying, I want to fill you with hope. But what most people fail to realize is Jeremiah 29 and 11 wasn't written during good times for Israel. It was written in bad times. See, Israel wasn't even in Israel when Jeremiah 29 11 was written. Israel was in captivity. The Babylonians had come in. They had conquered their nation. They had destroyed Jerusalem. 
And all Israel has been carried off into the Babylonian Empire. And it's in the midst of that, it looks like there's no future. And God says, hey guys, I know you're in captivity, but I've been thinking about you. And I know it looks really bad, but I've been thinking some good things about you. And I know it looks like Israel's done for, but you've got a future. And I know that it looks like there's no tomorrow, but I've got hope. And do you know what God's saying to some of you? It doesn't matter what your circumstance look like. God's still God. And God has something for you. And so God's looking down. He says, I'm thinking. I have a friend. He was obvious. He was honestly the best pastor I've ever known in my life. Never known any pastor as good as him. But he didn't come to faith the way most people come to faith. He didn't walk into a church like mine or a church like this and come to faith. In fact, where he came to faith was a little bit interesting. See, he was a lieutenant during the Vietnam War. He was stationed at a fire base. A fire base is an artillery center. And his job was to lead patrols out because the strategy was you had fire bases here, fire bases here, fire bases here. It sort of ringed an area so that you had coverage everywhere. And then you would lead a patrol out and you would engage the enemy. When you engaged the enemy, you would call in target locations and the enemy would be bombed. That was the essence of the strategy. Well, his job was to lead the patrols out, but the way they did it was you either had a fire base on one side protecting you there, a fire base behind you, or other fire bases were sending out their patrols at a certain time, so you always had someone on your side. You could not be flanked. But here's the thing. One day, he led his patrol out, but he misread the grid map. And a grid map is just a series of numbers that locates a trail. But when he read the grid map, he misread it, so he took his men down a trail, which meant that he didn't have another patrol protecting him. The enemy saw that, and they attacked. His unit's being overrun. They call for help. People start fighting towards him. It's an intense fight. Finally, other people get there, and they're able to rescue them but he tells the story of being at the gate of the fire base and he watches as 20 bodies and body bags are being brought back these are men in his patrol these are the men that he had led and he's looking as these body bags come by and he knows that each one of them died because he made a mistake It's at that point that what he does is it's now his job to write the letters. He's got to write the moms, the dads. He's got to write the wives and tell them that their husbands, their sons are not coming home. He goes to his little bitty hut, which is basically a tarp on the side of a hill, and he begins to write, and he is distraught. He knows that these men died Because he made a mistake. So he begins to write the first letter. He's crying. He's drinking. He gets through it. He writes the second letter. He gets through it. He's got 18 more of these. 
he can't handle it. So what he does is he gets his gun and he gets a bottle of whiskey and he goes outside the wire, the last perimeter of the fire base. And he goes to a hill. If you ever went outside the wire, it was no man's land. You were certain to die, but that was all right with him because he was going to kill himself. And his plan was simple. I'm going to drink this bottle as much as I can. Then I'm going to kill myself. So there he is on this hill. And as he's on this hill. He drinks half of the bottle. He's ready. He puts the gun up. As soon as he puts the gun up, there's noise. And it startles him. He looks around thinking, what's going on? But he doesn't see anyone. He doesn't uh, recognize anything. Thinks, man, my head's playing games. So he drinks the half of the half that's left. And he holds up his gun again. And he's about to pull the trigger. And he hears it again. He looks around and he doesn't see anybody. He can't figure it out. But he's committed to what he's going to do. And so he drinks the last of it. And as he has the gun position, he hears it again. Each time was louder, but this time he recognizes it. See, it wasn't coming from without, it was coming from within. As a little boy, he would visit grandma's house, and grandma would take this little tyke and, and hold him in her lap. And she had this book that he didn't know at the time, but it was the Bible, and she would read it. And then she'd stop reading, and she'd sing a song. And the song went like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He began to hear that song going over. And on a hill that no one could find, he looked up to God and he dropped his gun and he said, if you're really God, I've got to know you right now. That's where he got saved. That's where he came to know Christ. Because God has hope for you wherever you are. And for some of you, I don't think you're responsible for 20 body bags being pulled in. If God can give him hope in the middle of nowhere, I think there's some hope out there for you. Number one, you were created to be a person of hope. Number two, hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. Number three, hope changes everything. Number four, your hope is bigger than this life. Your hope is bigger than this life. You know, I've pastored for 44 years. I'm with people on their worst day. I'm with people on their best day. I'm with people when they feel like they're on top of the mountain. And I'm with people when they feel like the mountain's on top of them. I'm a pastor. During my 44 years, I've held the hands of 17 people when they've taken their last breath And went to heaven. Can I tell you all of those times when you hold someone's hand and they take their last breath? Here's what you naturally think this is the worst day 
of their life. This is the most horrible moment. But you know what? What I thought was their worst day in a split second was their best day. What I thought was the hardest day, they thought was the greatest day. Because in a split second, when their eyes closed, they began to open over there, and they're looking back, and they're saying, wish you could be here with me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says this. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. It's a famous verse. People shout about it. People cheer about it. People get emotional about it. We're more than conquerors. But what most Christians don't realize is that there are four comparisons that follow that verse. And the first one is this. It says, we're more than conquerors in death and life. The simple truth of the matter is no one in here would write it that way. Here's what we would say. We're more than conquerors in life and death. But God started with the word death. You're more than conquerors in death and life. Why did God start that way? He says, guys, I want you to know that after death, there's still life. God created you to be people of hope. To live with an expectation that God is alive and God is well and God is thinking about you and God is focused on you. And if there would be anything I would pray, I would pray that God would give some of you hope because you've been so hopeless for too long. Father, in the name of Jesus, just fill people with hope. Just give people hope right now. Lord, I pray, Father, for that person who just feels bad and they've lost all hope that they'll ever feel good. Just fill them with hope. I pray for that young couple that feels like marriage is just another fight. Fill them with hope. I pray for that single mom who thinks there's never gonna be a way that I'm gonna be able to get ahead in this world. Fill her with hope. I pray for that alcoholic man who thinks I've tried so many times to get free, fill him with hope. I pray for that teenager who's playing around with things and they think nobody really cares, it doesn't matter, fill him with hope right now. Lord, give people hope in this place today in Jesus' name. To all of you at Blairsville, I'm going to turn you over to your host pastor right now. To those of you here, I want to tell you one more story. Jenny and I, I've had privilege to be married to the most beautiful girl for 44 years. We love vacationing in San Diego. It's our favorite place just always very peaceful for us. One year we were there and we had been there for several days and we were supposed to be there several days later. But God spoke to me that I needed to get back 
to Plano, North Dallas area. And I didn't know why. I turned to my wife and I just said, sweetheart, I feel like God's telling us to go back. My wife's always been supportive. She says, whatever you feel God is, you just do it. We fly back, we're in our car, we're on the road that would head us back to Plano. I pick up my phone, I call a man named David. I said, David, I said, I just had you on my heart. And he said, Pastor, thank you so much for calling me. He said, I'm at the hospital right now and I don't think Karen, Karen was his wife, is gonna make it much longer. I said, David, I'll get there as quick as I can. I get there in time that this is the, the, the hospital bed. David's on this side of the hospital bed. He's got Karen's hand. I come up this side. I grab Karen's hand over here. I reach across the bed and I grab David's hand. And I pray a prayer. And when I finish praying that prayer, Karen takes her last breath and she goes to heaven. David's in tears, as he should be. His bride's in heaven. He's down here. We talk for a few minutes. We're heading towards the door. We get to the door because we've got to tell the family. And David just stops and he says, Pastor, I can't do this. And I was just thinking, he's talking about all the funeral things. And I said, David, I've done so many of them. You don't worry about it. I'll handle everything. He said, I'm not talking about the funeral. See, when Karen died, they had seven kids under the age of 16. And he looked at me, he said, I can't be dead to, dead to seven kids. I just can't do this. And I said, David, I don't have any magic answer for you. But what I will say to you is this, you have a 40-minute drive to work. Turn off your radio, and when you drive to work, pray in the Spirit. Now, this church, our church, we believe that once you get saved, you can get filled with the Spirit, and God gives you a heavenly prayer language. And people say, well, why do I need a heavenly prayer language? It's to pray perfect prayers that you don't know how to pray. See, I don't have a perfect prayer for a single dad with seven kids. But I said, just pray it. Jump ahead a year. I'm standing at the back of our church. I'm greeting people. David comes up to me. He says, do you know what today is? I said, David, it's a year since Karen went to be with Jesus. He said, Pastor, do you remember what you told me? And I recited back what I just said. He said, I don't know how God did it, but I've done that every day. And somehow our family has flourished. He prayed a perfect prayer. God honored it. Can I be honest with you? You can't survive this world with less than everything God has for you. You got to be saved. You got to be close to him. And you have to be filled with him so you can pray perfect prayers. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one looking around. Today I want to ask three simple questions. One, do you have a relationship with our Lord and Savior? Do you know like Karen that when you close your eyes down here, you're opening your eyes up there? If you don't, the Bible says these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. Second thing, maybe you would say I'm a person of faith, but you're honest and say, I'm just not close to him. If you're not close to him, 
today's the day. But third, maybe you can say that you're a person of faith and you're close to him. Have you ever been filled with the Spirit and received that perfect language? If you haven't, today's the day. So while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one looking around. In any one of those three areas, you know that I'm talking to you. I'd like to pray with you. If you'd like to be a part of this prayer, if you just raise your hand wherever you're at right now. In any one of those three areas, I see that hand, 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 I see that hand. Anybody else you know that we're talking to you? If you'll just raise your hand. I see that hand. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, the only people looking at me are the ones that raise their hand. Jesus loves you so very, very much. You've taken a step by raising your hand. We're going to pray a prayer. That prayer is going to do one of three things. If you don't know him, you'll get to know him. If you know him but you're distant, you're going to get close. But if you know him and you're close and you want to, God's going to fill you with the Spirit and give you a heavenly prayer language. In church, there aren't spectators. We're either receiving in faith or helping others. So everyone in this room, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, you said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, that I would be saved. Today I'm doing that. I believe with all my heart that you are my Lord. Therefore I thank you for saving me and changing my life forever in Jesus' name. Today, Lord, I'm asking you to fill me with the Holy Spirit and to give me my heavenly prayer language. I believe today you're filling me with the Holy Spirit and giving me my heavenly prayer language in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, what's, what's going to happen is this. In just a minute, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Mel. And this church, like our church, when you dismiss, there's going to be people up here. And what they're going to do is they're going to pray for you. And so if you raise your hand to get filled with the Spirit, you need to come up here and they'll pray for you. Let me just say, you don't know me. That's fine. But you guys have a great church and you have a great pastor. And I'm proud of them. And just know that. We have some books out there if they're interesting to you. So you can do that. Pastor Mel.